Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. Today is Tuesday, November 21st. I'm your host, Stephen Overly. Everyone in Washington seems to have AI on the brain. That includes Barack Obama. During the Obama Foundation's recent Democracy Forum, the former president told the audience that AI will make technological disruption more rapid and that there's no stopping it. Indeed, Obama said AI has benefits, like helping transition the U.S. to a zero-carbon economy. But those benefits should be shared across the U.S. and around the world. The question isn't how to stop these advancements completely, Obama said. It's how to make sure they're subject to public debate. So what voices are shaping his views? Obama published a short list of articles, podcasts, and books that have done just that, And among them is a book that was published in September called The Coming Wave, written by Mustafa Suleiman, the co-founder of Google DeepMind and current CEO of Inflection AI. I had Suleiman on the show at the time of his book's release. He explained the risks if companies develop AI without government intervention and his views on what that intervention should actually look like. Here's our conversation from September. Well, listen, I just finished reading The Coming Wave. The book does read like a warning shot to me that AI and kind of its related technologies can be this unstoppable force of destruction, really, if left kind of unchecked or uncontained. Uh, Is that the intention behind the book? It certainly wasn't the intention. I sort of set off to research the history of technologies and try to understand if there was anything that looked like a a law uh, that described the way that science and technology emerges in our world. And what I found uh, from looking back over the millennia is that almost all our general purpose technologies, from the discovery of the hand axe to uh, the discovery of fire to all the way through to the invention of steam, electricity, the microchip, to the extent that they are useful, they inevitably spread far and wide because obviously everybody demands them, and therefore they get cheaper um, because people find more efficient ways of of making them. Uh, They get easier to use for the same reason, and that compounds the proliferation. So it's it's really a kind of historical observation, which when you say it seems kind of obvious and, you know, like not that surprising, but there really aren't any material um, exceptions to this rule when you have these kinds of um, very general purpose, omni-use kinds of technologies. That is, they're, they're inherently useful in many, many, many different settings. And so from learning those sort of historical lessons, you're now in applying those in kind of the context of AI. I guess that to me is what maybe felt like the warning shot, warning that this technology is more powerful, more transformative, more you know, destructive even than these past technologies that you looked at? Well, that's true. I mean, we it's different to past technologies um, in the sense that past technologies have always required human oversight and human direction to initiate them, um, you know, whether it's electricity or, a, you know, a, a hammer right? You know, it requires an active human to make the decision to use the tool. In these cases, uh, with synthetic biology and artificial intelligence, they have some characteristics which are quite distinct. For example, 
um, you know, many of them are being developed in a way that prioritizes autonomy, right? That the, the, the systems are designed to do things independent of human oversight, right? And um, that that in itself is already like a lone cause for concern, but we're, we're very far from that. Or we're reasonably far from that. I mean, I, st- I, st- I still think that we're a good five to 10 years away from having systems which are inherently autonomous. And so there's plenty of time to make material interventions. And as you say, that's the point of my book. I'm trying to do my best to sort of predict how I think that this trajectory is going to unfold and lay out a few steps for what we should start to be doing at this point. Well, I do want to examine some of those steps. Um, But first, one of the chapters in the book I found really fascinating was all about nation states and, and this question of the failure of nation states. Power and technology is something we talk about a lot here on the podcast. Um, What will, in your view, be the tipping point for nation states kind of faltering in this AI world if if they don't adapt to it or or contain it? You know, for somebody like me, as you know, someone who's building technologies as well, I really write this as a kind of love letter to the nation state saying, I want the nation state to succeed and flourish in the next century. And this is a significant threat that's going to change the balance of power um, because we're basically on a on a course where new technologies are getting cheaper and smaller and easier to use. And so there is going to be a proliferation of power. It's going to be easier for bad actors to take advantage of these tools to try to, for example, spread misinformation or undermine elections, as we've, as, as we've already seen, or to, you know, essentially fundamentally contest truth at all stages of our political process. You know, we've adapted to technologies many times in the past. So I'm confident that with preparation and with proactive steps, we can again. But I think there is reason to be, you know, genuinely concerned at this stage. Well, you you do write in the book that because this technology is so fast moving, it is omni-use, as you said, like and uh, potentially autonomous in the future, that that each of those poses its own challenges to effectively containing it um, and to the nation state kind of adapting to it, which seems to me to be where a lot of the risks to the nation state come into play. The other power dynamic, though, which you touch on in the book is the concentration of corporate power, which is obviously something we're already talking about today, but seems to be even more pronounced in, in kind of the future with AI. I mean, is the future power of, you know, Silicon Valley, the tech industry, something that should be feared? Look, I don't think it should be feared, but I think that we have to take the potential misuses of centralized power just as seriously as I'm you know, raising concerns about the potential proliferation of power. And clearly, there's already a, a set of companies that have enormous power, enormous influence. And in general, they've so far used that in really productive ways to build amazing products which have made you know the united states the world leader in technology by a very very long way so there's a lot to be celebrated but i do think it's also appropriate to point out that we are centralizing power as much as we are spreading power so organizations that already have vast amounts of capital can hire the very best people they can adopt technologies quick enough uh, quicker than others And the returns to that kind of power compound far more quickly. And if we want to check that power, then we have to do so deliberately. And that means making sure that the nation state is strong and has very capable, well-paid civil servants who are able to wield power in a sensible way. 
one of the suggestions you had in the book is that every government needs a minister or secretary of emerging technology. Is that something you believe is missing in the U.S. in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the missing piece in a lot of policymaking and government decision making. I mean, it's it's a travesty that we don't have senior technical contributors in cabinet and in every government department, um, given how critical digitization is to every aspect of our world. You know, in many respects, the conversation in government is still stuck in talking about broadband and fiber, and it's just unbelievably out of date. So the real challenge for governments and the nation state is to try to adapt as quickly as the technology is moving. I mean, we can see this unbelievable evolution spurred on by the kind of scientific curiosities and the commercial instincts, um, you know, and to some extent, the kind of military and political competition. But there's these huge overwhelming incentives which are driving everybody to experiment with and, and, and create these technologies. And what we need on the government side is an equivalent level of pace in, um, you know, more innovative, more agile forms of, of oversight. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. One of the things you write in the book, which I have to say resonated as a reporter who covers U.S. policymaking, uh, is the uh, struggles that regulation has to keep pace. And in fact, you write in the book that regulation is not enough. Even like the EU AI Act, for instance, you say, um, reveals the challenges of regulation rather than necessarily being a clear solution. I mean, what should policymakers then be doing right now on AI if regulation itself is not enough? I think that the the reason why I say that regulation is not enough is because sometimes people will just you know, sort of hang up their hat and say, well, as long as, you know, the people on the Hill take care of regulation, everything's going to be fine, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, people are like, regulation is going to be a disaster. It's going to destroy our competitive edge. And, you know, it should be feared like the plague. And I I just think that there's just extremist positions on both sides these days. There's just a real apathy and cynicism for politics at a time when we actually need to lean into it and really try to progress it and so on. So to, to give an example, you know, I, I was at the, the White House uh, a couple months ago now with President Biden announcing the voluntary commitments, um, which, you know, Inflection AI, my, uh, my startup, my AI company, um, along with six other AI companies, including Google and, and, and Microsoft and OpenAI, um, signed up to, right? So this is a kind of experimental approach to modern regulation. Okay, it's not binding. Um, you know, okay, it's self-reporting. You know, they're definite weaknesses. But at the same time, it's a level of sort of proactive cooperation and taking steps in the right direction, which I think is the pragmatic thing to do given you know, how challenging it is to get new primary regulation through. And I'll also say on the flip side, you know, the Europeans have been working on the EUAI Act for over four years now, um, if you include all of the early research. 
And it's actually a pretty exceptional document. I mean, it's it's very well put together. It's a sensible framework that tries to evaluate applications with respect to their risk. Um, and it, it adopts the precautionary principle. And so it'll be very interesting to see what that kind of experimentation, what impact that experimentation has on the landscape. Some people are very skeptical that it may slow down um, innovation. It's a very hard one to evaluate that in, in Europe because there's already, you know, sort of not the biggest tech companies in Europe. And, you know, there's huge concentration around Silicon Valley. Right. So, you know, we'll have to see how that that turns out. But on the face of it, I think it's good to we should encourage regulatory experimentation and risk taking, because this is a moment when I think no one really knows for sure how this is going to roll out. And so we've got to sort of try to avoid being hypercritical of efforts that are genuinely trying to figure out a sensible path here. Well, you mentioned the White House agreement and, and that meeting that you had a few months ago. Did you leave that feeling optimistic and like that was kind of an innovative solution? You know, candidly, there there are some folks uh, who sort of saw voluntary commitments and and thought that meant weak, you know, or or unenforceable. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fair. They are um, unenforceable. I mean, that's for sure true. And I think it's a first step in the right direction. It's definitely not the end state here. So I think the way to think about it is that, you know, signing up to voluntary commitments publicly um, is no mean feat. It's it's not trivial. And it shows a kind of gesture of goodwill to basically coordinate among the big companies and share safety best practices share lessons learned um, publicly, not just with the big companies. And, you know, just to be super clear, this does not affect the current open source. So the small providers are unaffected by these voluntary commitments. It's really just those of us who are training the very largest frontier models in the world. Well, you mentioned Inflection AI, your AI company that you're building. How are you practicing what you're preaching here in this book, right? Because you write about AI companies, tech companies needing to kind of accept more responsibility, needing to, you know, concern themselves with priorities beyond profit. How are you doing that? Well, we founded the company as a public benefit corporation. Um, this is a new type of corporation that is still a for-profit entity. But in our mission, in the core legal charter of the company, the directors have a fiduciary obligation to balance the returns to the shareholder with equal weight to the impact of our activities on the environment and on people materially affected by what we do, even if they're not our customers. So this is a new kind of legal structure. It's experimental. It's not clear that you know we'll always get it right. But I do think it's a first step in the right direction to give us a proper legal framework to try to make decisions that you know really are in the best interests of people long term and don't just optimize for short term profit maximization. To give you an example of that, if you try Pi today, um, Pi is our AI, our personal AI, which stands for personal intelligence. You can find it at pi.ai. Um, it's the safest AI on the market today. Right? None of the prompt hacks none of the jailbreaks, none of the clever tricks to trip up the model work. It's very, very safe. It's very avoidant at talking um, you know, in racist, homophobic or toxic language. Um, it's generally very good at pushing back when somebody tries to encourage it to agree with or spread conspiracy theories or misinformation, say, for example, about elections or vaccines. Um, it certainly doesn't always get it right but it doesn't avoid the topic. 
right? So a lot of other AIs will just say, I'm not going to talk about it. In this case, it will gently ask why. It will approach the conversation with curiosity and, and kindness and not be judgmental on anybody. There's this meeting here in Washington next week that the Senate is convening um, part of these listening sessions on AI that so you'll have lawmakers in the same room as, you know, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Sam Altman, Satya Nadella, a lot of the big companies. What would your message be to, to each of those kind of groups in the room, both the tech executives and the lawmakers when it comes to the these next steps needed for containing AI? Stereotyping each other is really dangerous and I think unproductive. So, you know, the lawmakers will have a tendency to point to the, um, you know, tech execs and say, well, you don't want any regulation. You don't want anything to be binding. And, you know, you just are just kind of fobbing us off with business as usual, you know, sort of fake, uh, you know, um, collaborations. And I don't think that's true. I think that there are a lot of very sincere uh, you know, people in Silicon Valley who really do want to do the right thing. Um, you know, I have huge respect for um, Satya Nadella and, and Sam Altman, for example, who genuinely are raising, you know, sensible, pragmatic concerns in, you know, a, a really well-intentioned way. And I think we should try and see the good intention there. Likewise, I would say to my, you know, Silicon Valley friends, like the idea that this can be completely unregulated is very naive and there's a there's a sort of techno libertarian gang um you know who really just think that regulation can only be bad and any additional regulation is going to slow everybody down i think that's the opposite i mean if you look at the effectiveness of airline regulation um you know back in the you know the early 50s when consumer flight was really starting to take off in a big way you know, the airline industry got together and agreed a set of safety protocols collectively because they knew that it was going to be in their commercial interest to, you know, lead with a very strong safety record so that, you know, if, if, if one airline was unsafe, everybody would suffer, you know, because of the reputation and fear of air travel being unsafe. And now we look back 70 years later and aircraft safety is one of the safest modes of transport ever, um, you know, and that that's a remarkable achievement that, you know, it can be so robust and so consistently, you know, reliable. And I think that's the kind of standard that we've got to work towards. Excellent. Well, uh, Mustafa, really fascinating book and, and great conversation here. I appreciate you joining us on Politico Tech. Thanks very much for your time. It's been great chatting with you. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overley. I'll see you back here tomorrow.